Okay, we, we spent uh, one, one lesson talking about um, what our fervent love for one another should be like and how that should, how that should show in our, in our walk with those who are near us, who are inside of our gates. Remember that conversation. Um, what, about, what about suffering? Uh, um, Weston mentioned the fact that, that Christians then are suffering. What about Christians now? Okay. Oh, so we're getting to the meat of this, right? What's the point of the suffering? To purify us. To purify us. What should we be getting from the suffering? Because he tell it's not as if we do all of this for God's glory and we get nothing for it. Our inheritance is in heaven. What? Deeper faith. faith, That the proof of your faith, which is more valuable than gold. So we're we're not just talking about the fact that Christians suffer and we need to suffer well, which we do. We're talking about through the suffering, our faith is strengthened. And that faith is based off of not because we're Christians and we should have faith, but because there's an inheritance waiting for us. And that inheritance, that glory that we will give to God in that moment should be the thing that in that moment of sorrow, in that moment of lament, in that moment of hurt, we can still look to God and say, thank you for what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing, but I know the end result of what you're doing. And because of that, thank you. That, that's where we've led up to at this point in 1 Peter 4. So let's read 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. So what is Peter telling us about the inevitability of suffering for the Christian? You can look back at verse 12. 
Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Now, I'm going to be honest. There, I'll be going through my day and come across something that happens and go, are you kidding me? But he says, don't be surprised. And God has given me a great gift in my wife, Pam, because one of the things that I have, I, I have been Peter on this. I've said this to Pam on a number of occasions. She's like, you're a pessimist. No, I'm a realist. I expect people to do the wrong thing. Therefore, I'm never surprised by it. And when I am surprised, it's because they did something that was good, right? Oh, that's fabulous. It gives me something to be happy about. But that's almost the mentality that we should have about our suffering. When the suffering comes, it shouldn't be something that surprises us. If you're truly a believer, you should expect that. What's the other side of that? If you're not seeing suffering, you should have red flags going off in your mind. It's not spoken, but it's kind of that unspoken and reverse comment here, right? Don't be surprised when you see suffering. So when you're not seeing suffering, should you be surprised? Well, if you're a Christian, you should be. And it says as though strange, uh, some strange thing were happening to you. That's that, that, the, the phrase, the Greek word used for happening is the term for, for rolling the dice. That, that chance. Oh, this is just some random thing that's happened. Because in God's economy, nothing is random. <clears throat> So if it's happening to you, it's happening to you because God has allowed it and willed it to happen to you. Well, that person sinned against me. Yep, he did. And God allowed that to happen. Why? Going back to 1 Peter chapter 1. To prove your faith. It keeps coming back to that, folks. That's why he started with that in 1 Peter 1. Yes. Do you hear what Chris said? Okay, she's jumped to the middle of the lesson, and that's okay. No, this is great because we get so caught up in that and, and, and in the, some of the counseling, the biblical counseling that I do. One of the things, the conversations that I have with people is when you allow yourself to be surprised by the things that are happening to you, your emotions take over. And your response to those emotions, do the, are, are the, the fact that that's happening to you, is that a sin on your part? No. Is the emotion that you're having a sin? Are you, you're angry because somebody has wronged you? Is that, is that wrong? No. How did you respond to the anger? Well, that was wrong. How, you, how did you respond to the offense? How did you respond to that? That's where the sin for us intersects. 
And what Cresta is saying, which is absolutely faithful to what Scripture teaches, is that when you allow fear to control you, it's because you've lost sight of who your God is. Does that change the hurt? No. Does that change the suffering that you're going through? No. Will it change your response to the suffering? It should. And we're going to get there because one of the things he talks about later in these verses is why we respond these ways. So keep that in mind as we move through. Thank you, Krista. So the next question, what does it mean to partake in Christ's sufferings? In verse 13, he says, but to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. What does it mean to partake in the sufferings of Christ? Directly from Scripture, right? You will suffer with with Him, and you will be raised to life with Him. And one of the things that Peter talked about earlier was the fact that the suffering that we endure is like the suffering that Christ endured. The difference is, is our it goes back to the emotions, right? Our response to that suffering, Christ's response versus how we respond. And how if we are Christ-like in those sufferings, we respond the way Christ responded. That's where it gets hard. Because our emotions don't want us to respond the way Christ responded. We want to deal with it ourselves, right? I'm going to take care of this. And Christ, you go back, was it... uh, Two, uh, chapter two, verse 20. When you suffer for good... And when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, and this finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered, leaving you an example that you should follow. Leaving you an example that you should follow. Leaving you an example that you should follow. Who did not sin, and nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie. Who being reviled, verbally abused, did not revile in return. He didn't verbally abuse in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But kept, this is where it comes back to what Krista mentioned a couple of minutes ago, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So if we, 1 Peter 4.13, are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, that means we are responding in Christ-likeness to our sufferings. And, and this connects back to it. We get so caught up in the emotion. I'm not, emotion's not a bad thing. Emotions are road signs that God has given us to tell us when something is not right, either with the environment we're in, the person we're interacting with, or with ourselves. Something is not right. But we should never let our emotions guide us. The truth should shape your emotions. That way your emotions respond the way Christ's emotions responded. 
And I want to jump back to John chapter 15. And some of you are going to go, this is starting to sound a little reminiscent of a previous Sunday school run. And it should. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world because this world because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So this is Christ's sufferings for us. So Peter mentions the possibility of glorifying God in the midst of that suffering. How is it possible to glorify God in the midst of your suffering? Say that again. How we respond. If we, if we recognize that he's talking about for his glory, to begin with, I think that we can glorify him in it uh, while we go through it. We just, if we are expecting it and we know that it's for his glory, then we can glorify him in it. I think that in, 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 your, in the middle of suffering, this can be the hardest. How many times in the Psalms does the psalmist say, I don't know what to say? Because the suffering is so great. Remember back to the sermon I preached on Psalm 42. Where did the author of Psalm 42 continually go back to? His mind was continually dragged back to his suffering. Continually dragged back to his suffering. But where was he constantly taking that sorrow, that lament? Back to the throne, back to the Father, right? And in your suffering, people will see that. They will see the hurt. They will see the tears. But they'll see the hope behind it. And it goes back to what Weston said. It takes us back to the first chapter of First Peter, right? The proof of our faith. We are chosen. God has chosen you for this moment to prove your faith. There's hope in that. The sovereign God of the universe who could do anything and everything he wanted to do, put you right where you're at to deal with the things that you are currently dealing with. There's hope in that, that you are chosen for this moment. Well, how can there be hope? How, how can there be hope in this moment? Do you understand who it is we're talking about? Um, was it Matthew 18? Is that right? No. I wrote it down. 
Matthew 11. Remember uh, Gentle and Lily? Who are we talking about? I wrote down the wrong passage. Sorry. No, I was just on the wrong page. At this time, Jesus said, verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Are you a little uncomfortable at being called an infant? Yes, Father, this is well-pleasing in your sight. And then verse 28, this is going to sound very familiar to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Well, look back at First Peter chapter four. Verse 14, "If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Think about that. God's glory, the spirit of God and the spirit of glory rests on you. Do you see this? Verse 19, therefore those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls, entrust a, a banking word that means to put on deposit. Entrust your souls to who? What's it say? Faithful creator. You're called to endure the sufferings because your faithful creator who created you and everything around you, who knows everything that's going on, who has the ability to do and anything that he desires to do, and who has said he will be faithful, he encourages you to come to me with your burdens and take his yoke and it will become light. Your faithful creator is the one who is calling you to do this. So, verse 17, when it says, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does it mean by saying that judgment begins at the house of God? 
does this mean that uh, fire and brimstone is going to fall on church first? Don't ever take this verse out of context. What are the last five verses been talking about? Yes. And in our suffering, in our suffering, what's he doing? What's he doing to your soul in that suffering? In his image. He's testing you, right? That that word has been used before. He's purifying you. He's cleansing you. So we can't take this verse out of context and stick it somewhere else and make it make any sense because the whole point of this is how, what is God doing in your suffering? Ultimately, he's bringing him glory, but what's the best way that he brings himself glory? By taking something broken and destroyed and fixing it and cleaning it up And for us to be able to say, it's not what I've done, it's what he's done. How in the world did you get through that cancer, all all those cancer treatments that you've been, it's not me, it's him. How in the world did you get through the 10 months of suffering that you went through after your car accident? It wasn't me, it was him. How did you get through Losing your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your child, and are standing here to talk about it. It's not me. It's him. That suffering process is for our cleansing. When it's talking about judgment here, it's talking about the process through which we are cleansed. That sanctification process. We're not talking about the justification process. That's once and for all and done. We're talking about the process where he makes us more like Christ until we are with Christ. And the only way that that works is through our suffering. In the book, he jumps to James chapter 1. And it kind of it, it's it's interlaced. You you kind of have to read James and First Peter together, because everything James talks about are the same things that First Peter is talking about, and Second Peter is going to be talking about. And to get a whole picture of what God means by us dealing with our suffering, we have to see the the whole picture. We can't just look at the one piece. James chapter one verses two to six. My brother, encounter joy. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. What does it mean to count it joy, count it all joy, to consider it all joy? 
Does it mean you need to be happy in your suffering? You're a Christian. You should have a smile on your face and you should never have tears in your eyes. Or, what's the, the more popular point of view right now? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be suffering at all. It means your faith isn't strong enough. Isn't that the most popular view espoused today? God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The wise part, yeah. He does want you to be wise. It's like a broken clock. It's right, right twice a day, right? Okay, occasionally those false preachers will get one thing right. What's it mean to consider it all joy? What well, proves who you belong to. He says that he works in us the will to do for his good pleasure. You know, all these things. If, if you're going through the, the test or the, the trial or whatever, you can rejoice um, that you belong to, to Christ. The, the verse that you quoted in Matthew about that he's revealed this to infants. If you read in Luke, it says that Jesus leaped for joy in that moment when, it, when he, he says the same exact thing. It's the only time in Scripture that Jesus, it's ever said that he rejoiced. He's rejoicing because it's proof that you know, of who you belong to. So I think, like you said, like the joy comes from your hope. Your joy is set on the hope, not on the middle of your suffering. Ah, so it's about where your focus of your joy is. Where's your joy coming from? Because people always say that, right? Consider it joy in your trials and your sufferings. Really? I could never do that. Well, that's because their mindset is I'm trying to put joy into the pain that I'm feeling. It's not what it's telling us to do, right? Where is the focus of your joy? It's, it's in the one who has allowed you to be here. The one who you know, or hopefully you know, is faithful. Your faithful creator that will carry you through. So, according to James, what are some of those positive things we get from suffering? What? <laughs> kind of hate that one, right? Lord, give me patience. I want it right now. Right? Well, you want it? It's coming. Because all Christians should be suffering in some way. And through that suffering, you're learning patience. So you don't have to pray for it. You can trust that it's coming. What else? Steadfastness. Steadfastness. Completeness. Holiness. What? Holiness. Holiness. Lacking in nothing. These are the things that our suffering brings. I'm going to finish with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for, the, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, sound like joy? I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am huh, well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What was Paul's experience of Christ in the midst of his suffering? This is a hard takeaway, folks. What is Paul's experience of Christ in the midst of his great suffering? Christ is sufficient. Okay. Yes. Let's make it a little more personal. What is Paul asking for? He's asking to be persecuted, basically. In this passage in 2 Corinthians, what's he asking for? He wants the thorn to go away. And he said it three times. Lord, I prayed three times that you take this away. And God's most loving response he can possibly give us. No. So what suffering are you going through right now that God has said no to when you asked him to take it away? I've heard this before, and the longer I live, the more real it becomes to me. The only way out is through. If God truly loved you, he will not take you out of it but he will walk with you through it why because if he takes you out of it what happens to your faith it may grow a little bit it may not grow at all but if you're walking through it where's your focus going to be Hopefully. On him. Not on the things that are going around. I mean, listen to Paul. I am well content. Can we say that? With weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecution and hardship. For the sake of Christ. Where's his focus? Where should ours be? Remember, Christ doesn't remove it. The only way out is through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for First Peter. Thank you for a constant reminder 
that through our suffering, your desire for us is for us to be more like Christ. That you desire to prove our faith. And that through this proof, that we have a great hope of a faithful creator who is walking with us through it. Father, through the suffering and the trials that we see this week, bring the thoughts that you are a faithful creator, that you are gentle and lowly, and that even though you say no, you walk through us with it. Help us to remember that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.